Welcome to Packet Pushers. Containers are that thing that everybody is talking about these days. And while most people are focused on microservices, Packet Pushers headquarters is thinking a lot about how the hell they connect to the network. Well, not just the network, it's much more complicated than that. What happens when your containers are running on Google Compute, AWS, What if your containers are in your private cloud and you want to use the same provisioning and monitoring tools in your public cloud as you do in your private cloud? Nobody seems to be talking about those types of things. And yet, everybody's running around flapping their hands and their little wings and their gums are all going... And the question that we want to talk about is, or sort of focusing on today's show, is what does network operations look like when you don't even have a switch to configure? All right, and that's where we're headed in this private and public cloud era. Now, have we got answers to these sorts of questions? Well, today's sponsored show comes to us from Newarge Networks, provider of one of the finest software-defined networking solutions for several years now. And we've done several shows with them, sponsored, and thanks very much to them for supporting the Packet Pushes. And today we're having a discussion on how their virtualized services platform, their VSP, is actually able to answer those questions. Joining us is Hamid Sani, Director of Product Management for Newarge Networks, and Rajat. Chopra, Senior Software Engineer from Red Hat, to have a discussion about extending these networks into these uncharted waters. So let's kick off with the first question, which is, in the intro, I talked about how containers are taking the networks into places that didn't exist a couple of years ago. So so let's start, Hamid, with how the hell are we going to network public cloud and private cloud and with containers? Where, where do we start talking about this? Hey, Greg, really great question, and thanks for having us today. You know, I think, like you said, people are just kind of still coming to terms with what exactly does it mean to run these containers in production, right? And so in that regard, all these different environments, uh, and, and there are different environments. They're, they're, they're thinking, you know, maybe I'll start in private cloud today, but I want to go to the public cloud. And they're thinking, hey, w- it, can I make choices that will, you know, not lock me in into one or the other? So I think that's what, where people are thinking is, you know, how do I make sure I, I pick something which works not only today in my private cloud, but also works in public cloud when I'm ready to get there. And then there's people coming kind of the other way around where they're thinking, hey, this is a new technology and public cloud is also sort of new to some degree, you know, for for the Mm. uh, traditional enterprises. And then they're thinking, hey, if I'm going to take this new technology, let me put it out there uh, first and then Mm. kind of bring it back. Uh, And so that's kind of going the other direction. So you're sort of saying people are saying, I can't I think, you know, containers is new. It hasn't proven itself yet. Why would I go and build an infrastructure to host it? Why don't I suck it and see in the private in the public cloud and see if it actually holds up to the to the to promises that people are making? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's kind of what they're doing is is they're thinking, you know, before I kind of build my whole infrastructure stack um, with all the perceived benefits, let me try it out on on you know that infrastructure that I don't need to build. I can just you know rent it by the R, and and that gives them a great opportunity to test a few different things, kick the tires, and then bring it back in. Containers are solid; they have a lot of promise, but the, clearly they are young. So when you see young technology like this, then uh, yeah, you know, the the people want to try this out, and then they see a lot of POCs and everything, and they say, oh, all right, let, let me see how it really works with my some of the workflows and containers, let's try it out. Yeah, containers the has the stink of inevitability about it in that, <laughs> um, you know, the fact is that there are businesses out there making real money out of these things. Now, quite often they're just um, amateur businesses or startups, as I call them, where, you know, they might have millions and millions of dollars in revenue, but really there's 50 kids in there fooling around with this new technology because it actually works for them. But the point is, is that at some time these, this technology will, will mutate out of this sort of playground where it's proven to work and scale to do, you know, online shopping applications or gaming servers or, you know, whatever it is that it's going to be. And it's, you know, the enterprise is always shy of adopting new technologies and, and containers seems to have that that sort of odor of it's going to scale pretty well. So we're going to have to start playing with it in the enterprise. And I think what you're saying is it really, it's going to be an interesting development because it's coming from the public cloud to the private. I would say it's not an order. It's like, you know, kind of freshness you see on the horizon and it's say, hey, mm-hmm. by the way, if you cut open the containers, they've been kind of existing in some way mm. for quite a long time. What What is a container as we see today is uh, it's a process. You see the Linux and the kernel and how it views this. It's just a process. It's nothing mm-hmm. more. You've been running processes in, the, in, in your computer for a long time. 
and now you've just got them contained. C groups has been around since 2006 onwards. And um, yep. that's just saying, hey, limit the resources. That's that's the beginning of containment. But uh, processes have been around. Now, uh, with respect to the network itself, there's been some, uh, you know, more more things that have come around with, you know, each container needs a IP address and things like that. So these things have yes. changed. The packaging has changed. It is made uh, kind of it more consumable, more composable. And that's why we see the, uh, uh, you know, momentum behind it. Uh, mm. And yes, it's not it's not a stink. I would say just saying it's so let's, fresh and something you should run after. <laughs> I'm, I'm being sarcastic. I'm a, a little bit. I, I think that I think the thing here, what you're referring to here, is tools like Kubernetes and Docker Swarm and uh, Mesosphere, which are orchestration tool chains for controlling large numbers of containers. And and the fact is that containers can spawn or instantiate inside of, you know, milliseconds, hundreds of milliseconds sort of time to create and then destroy them. And this, the, part of this is what the challenge for the networking is how do you um, create networks when the endpoint might only exist on a transient basis of seconds for its total life cycle? Yes, I mean that's the challenge that when we first figured out, hey, let's let's give IP addresses or what do you say, network endpoints to, or multiple IP addresses, so for that matter, to to containers. And all of a sudden, you have a scale issue, not in terms of how many containers are going to be there, but those containers are going to be born in in less than a second. And um, and and I, it's 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 probably a random number right now, but uh, several months ago, I came across, and then you say forty seven percent of the containers wouldn't even last the day. They would come, they would be born, and they would die. Some of them would actually less than, last less than an hour. Well, it, it, it's, not just the, uh, it's not just the IP address assignment you know, during the instantiation of that container, but it's also how do you address this object? How do you actually have a socket that gets opened up to this thing? Because now there's uh, mappings that need to be done, uh, et cetera, to enable connect communication with that new endpoint that's been uh, stood up. That's right. I mean, it's an endpoint. Doesn't mean that it's just you know you, you got an address that someone you think that would be you got to have the entire uh, QoS built in, all the firewalls, everything. What it, what it can connect to, what others can't connect to, where it is allowed firewalls egress, ingress, both. So that's right. It's it's not just provisioning or allocating the resource, but actually connecting the wires through. Uh, and one of the initial things that uh, well, the kind of departure from earlier models say, hey, let's have a central controller where uh, we're going to get this stuff. And then that, that, that's latency. That's a lot of latency. And then containers might be just waiting for the process to just get started. And, and it, it being stuck on the network is not a good idea. So one of the good ideas that people have started to float around is, hey, let's pre-provision. And I don't know where it's going to go. And there must be 100 ways. But that sounds like one of the new ways that people have thought about only because uh, of uh, the, the quickness that these containers come by, the volume that they, these guys are born with and die as well. So, mm -hmm. okay, drill into the pre-provisioning, because this is actually the first I've heard of this specific thing. What it implies to me, so you can tell me where I'm wrong here, is there's a set of, you know, all that connectivity is mapped out ahead of time, and so once the container is spun up, all, uh, all the pre-provisioning, if you will, has been done, so that communication is ready to roll right through the firewall, etc.? Is let, let's be correct. That's not the only way I'm suggesting. I'm saying these are the things that people would start talking about, like we're talking mm. about now. Yes, so you set it up, and in fact, uh, one of the uh, I would say advanced topics would be even include the scheduler. I have a container, and I want to get it launched. Why not get the scheduler to know and understand where the network is according to my requirements and according to my tenancy rules and stuff, and mm. planted where I'm going to be you know, well-serviced, pre-planned, pre-provision. Yeah. It's one of the ideas. I'm not saying this is how it is done, and it's, it is how hmm. it should be done. But uh -huh. these ideas no. are born only because of these new circumstances. And it's good. Why yep. not? I think we start off, let's talk about how do we connect these containers, right? Because they're ephemeral, they're, they've got shorter lifetime spans, they come and go. You know, what if we could kind of address the issue of how to connect them very quickly, right? But I think that's just the beginning of things, right? Because if you think about it, what are the other other sort of uh, mm. issues you're going to have, right? So the other one we're going to have is how do I also provision policies, right? And that provisioning has to be fast, has to be real time as well, right? Yeah. Because you're sharing, and you, remember this, containers are sharing the same kernel, right? So inherently, there is uh, you know a lower degree of security in that sort of model, 
and people are working on that problem. But today, at least, you know, there, there's that that concern you have. So yes. you can't cannot you know have uh, network policies not be provisioned um, because that is that is going to compromise your environment, um, you know, very quickly. So when you say network policies, what do you actually mean there? You're talking like access control lists. Or I give you this IP address because you match this. You're part of this deployment. Is, is it as simple as that, or is it more complicated? Well, I, I think it's more complicated because guess what? In some ways, you do not want to uh, rely on IP addresses at all in order to set these things up, right? Mm. It's got to be somewhat contextual, right? Because uh, my IPs are not static. I don't, you know, I don't know what IP, and I, you do not want to depend on an IP, on a specific IP, as opposed to, you know, sort of the VM, you know, the world where things ran in VMs, because they were pretty static uh, compared to containers. So you do not want to rely on IPs, in my opinion. It's got to be some somewhat context-based. And, you know, uh, now think, let's just take a very simple example, right, of, of like you've got an application made out of multiple microservices, for example, right? So, so microservice becomes a context for your policy, and then you can decide, okay, I want this microservice to talk to that microservice, you know, so A can talk to B, but A can't talk to C, right? So so that's sort of the kind of, uh, you know, abstractions you want to think about. So I think, it, you know, if you think about it, abstractions become even more and more critical as you move into this world where, where things are very dynamic, right? I think that's that's kind of what I kind of view this this landscape as. So that dynamic nature of this infrastructure that we're talking about, not every data center is running this way, a lot of shops are headed this way, but there's a real implication for operations here. That is to say, we folks that are used to provisioning infrastructure by hand, that, that's not reality anymore. You can't do that in this sort of an environment. And you mentioned earlier schedulers, and we talked about Kubernetes, which it keeps coming up as like, if you're picking a scheduler, Kubernetes seems to be one of the safer ones to bet on, even though there's a lot of other uh, alternatives out there. So we park on this for a minute. Kubernetes is is doing a lot of the work that we operations folks might have done by hand once upon a time. So can we just, you know, put some framework around that? What is what is Kubernetes and, and why is it gaining uh, so much momentum? Why we can all judge. And uh, what it is, is a container orchestration platform. Uh, you would have loads of containers and then they all map applications map onto your tiers of containers and pods. And pod is an idea where you say, let's group some containers because they live together, you know, kind of consult together. So they will move physically together on the same machine and then run the process side by side. So they have the same stack in, in some ways. And no, a group so, of mic- group of containers, as in each container is running a microservice, and these microservices are common to one another because they make a part of an app. Is that a typical grouping that would make up a pod? Uh, no. Well, well, let's put it this way: uh, a microservice needs its uh, uh, croonies, let's say, or say, uh, "Hey, I'm 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 actually the server, and I need a logging guy with me because it needs to just grab the logs." And that process is going to just always go with me wherever I go. But mm-hmm. my brother server is also a microservice, but it doesn't need to come with me. It's another pod, one pod. Uh, it's, a, it's a good example of saying a web server and a logging, uh, mechan- okay, a yeah. logging process. Okay. So, so you have a syslog daemon in another container so that the services are microized. The, uh, well, the daemon itself, which is collecting the cent- logs at the central place, is a different thing. But the one who is actually scraping the logs out of the current process uh, is, is kind of an add-in to it, right? So, yes, okay. hey, you're running, and I'm I'm going to grab whatever you put on on standard out, standard error, or whatnot, and, and I'll collect it and then put, post it somewhere else. I know where to post it. So these two guys yeah. kind of run along together. So that's an okay. example of two containers being together in a pod. But you might have, I can imagine in a typical infrastructure, if you're instantiating, you might want to have a group of web servers over here and a group of web servers over here, and now I actually either want them to talk together or I don't want them to talk together. I might have... Um, a situation where I want groups of containers to be in a shared layer three network. I might want them to be in a shared layer two network. I might want some of them to be isolated, like completely isolated. Exactly. Does- very, very good example. And this, this kind of underscores what Harmeet was saying. You know, these these kind of are dealt with some certain kind of policies, and they are complicated. You just gave a good example there, that web servers are. Feathers, birds of the same feather, but they do not want to communicate with each other. A load balancer is, for example, the same thing. Let's, let me give an example of I have 
load balancer I am sharded. I am dealing with shard one and another load balancer is shard two. And they're, mm-hmm. they don't need to talk to each other. In fact, you do not want them to talk to each other, although they're of the same kind. You want Kubernetes right. as a container orchestration system to be able to scale them up, scale them down, monitor their health and everything. They are kind of you know birds of the same feather, like I said, but they should not mm-hmm. talk to each other. They have east-west isolation on them. And who's going to say yeah. that? Someone so needs to specify it. Actually, that's an interesting idea. The idea that web servers usually share a layer two VLAN, they actually shouldn't. You should actually have them all inside, you know, isolated. So if one gets compromised, you can't do a horizontal escalation or escalation internally. Um, but you may have a tier like middleware, for example. You may have a JBoss thing and saying, hey, we need to communicate with each other. We need to know all my brothers. We actually mm. form a ring. So who knows what it is? But all of them yeah. will come with their own policies and old, old styles. And, and, and the application deployer, the application developer has to be able to say that, say that and right. convey that to the network provider. And Kubernetes does a really, really good job there. And we've spent good mm-hmm. time there. And then we've come up with these uh, plugins, the plugin system and, and the network policy objects, which is, which is all, almost at the door now, uh, where the intent of the application developer can travel down to the actual network infrastructure provider, which operates as a plugin, and they can pick up and dynamically provision all the things that the application developer intended to. And that's beauty. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to add in there, right? Uh, maybe going back a little bit to why, first the question, like why Kubernetes uh, is gaining so much traction. Uh, and I think we have our views on that. Uh, we, we, we've placed a big bet on Kubernetes. and. Um, that's why I brought in Rajat today, because because really yeah. Red Hat is one of the core you know key contributors to that. But I think mm-hmm. it goes back to fundamentally you know if you look at the genesis of Kubernetes, uh, it's it's something that Google open sourced right based on a system called Borg that they have been running for years internally. So so it's been you know it comes with a credibility that not just because it's you know backed by Google, but the fact that it has been used in production not exactly the same um, you know code, but but very close clone, I would say, that it has been running in production for years uh, at a sort of web scale that is, you know, um, probably unparalleled in the world today, right? So I mm. think that's why it brings in a lot of credibility to begin with. I think the other thing is the fact that compared to some of the other ecosystems out there, I think people see that a more of a community um, you know, in the, in in Kubernetes than perhaps in those other ecosystems, because um, you know it wasn't formed by a company that kind of wanted to, you know, make that product. Yeah, at, yeah. You know. Yeah, at, we've been talking about how Kubernetes seems likely to get away because the intentions behind it are technology centric, not profit centric. Exactly. And, exactly. You know, pro- there's plenty of software out there which is built to make a profit for the person selling it, and those products tend to be less useful from a customer perspective because they're, they're trying to solve, you know, address two masters. And Kubernetes is likely to win because it's technology-centric. Google said, put it into the community and said, look, you know, but it comes from a, it birthed out of this amazing, you know, uh, test bed that Google has for containers. That's what they use, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, I agree. I think, you know, the bet that Newarch is making is that Kubernetes is going to be the the likely winner there seems very sound to me. I've got no reason to, to, to not to doubt that. I would say, you know, all engineers, whoever is listening to this would say, who cares who wins or not? I mean, look into it, open it, do a PSC. I mean, run it by yourself and see how it works, how it doesn't work. If it doesn't work well, then contribute and make it better. And I think that's mm-hmm. also what I'm seeing as an engineer. Uh, there's problems, real problems being solved, and they're being solved in a really nice fashion. And the architecture seems to be really robust and solid and open to change as well, which is, which, which is a good point. And so far, it's good, so it should be used. And who knows who's going to be the winner? We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a fair point. We don't know who's going to be the winner. But I do know that a lot of engineers are curious to know what they should be looking at next because it is impossible to look at everything. There are so many alternatives out there. Uh, and container networking is just one of those areas, a very small area when you get into data data center orchestration. Uh, and yet, even in that small area, there are so many different things that you could be looking at uh, about how networking gets done. Um, different elements that plug into OpenStack, uh, Kubernetes, uh, there's uh, Mesos, there is Project Calico, there's Ramana.io, and other ideas that are out there about how networking is going to get done. And so what engineers are looking for is they kind of want to 
filter that list a bit, you know, and kind of pick a few things to look at. Because once you start looking into Kubernetes, there's a lot there. It's a a big and powerful platform that uh, for folks to to wrap their brains around. They don't want to work on just the one or on everything. They want to really focus on you know, one thing or a few things that are likely to move them ahead. So let me talk a little bit about that. But let me also make a comment. You know that um, you know even though we are betting big on Kubernetes, it doesn't mean we're we're not thinking about the other ecosystems. We in fact do support you know Docker environments. We do support Mesos as well. Uh, and so, you know, Nuage has always been about openness and, you know, the fact that, you know, we, we, want, to, we want to go where our customers are going and today they're not quite sure. And, and so we're there to help them kind of through this journey. And the way I think now coming back to the question, uh, you know, that you talked about, the way to think about it is, yes, people are kind of looking at this problem very narrowly, right? And because they're kind of like, this is the new thing and I need to kind of solve everything around that. But when they start kind of thinking about how am I going to take this technology to production, then they realize that, you know what, I do not, you know, a point solution like some of the, the ones you mentioned, which I think are, they have started out great. They have a lot of potential again. Nothing, you know, to knock on them. But when people start looking at this, they say, hey, you know, my containers are not going to run in isolation. I need to connect them to different environments. Every single time we've gone in to have a serious discussion, and typically it's when the, the sort of the developers and the uh, you know the infrastructure team or the ops team get together and say, how are we going to take this production? They realize they're going to have some services which will never ever be in containers or will maybe take you know many many years. So how do they build applications sort of you know out of services which are scattered? So that you don't want silos. I think the first really first fundamental question in a real sort of production environment, you know, how do I connect the containers to things which are, you know, not inside containers? That's sort of, I think, the first first question. Mm. And so that's, I think, very key. It's 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 kind of people don't think about it and, and kind of say, hey, I'm going to go pick the simplest thing that kind of gets me going. But then once they're ready to kind of roll things out, then they say, oops, you know, we made a mistake. We didn't look at this, you know, broadly enough. And and now they have to go back to the drawing board and say, okay, how do I make, you know, these things talk to other services? How do I make, you know, things accessible from the outside yeah. world, et cetera? And there are actually even more problems, but I think that's a first fundamental issue that every single customer we talk to, they they when they realize that they say yes i need to kind of look at this more broadly so that's a, actually a great place for us to start here and kind of evolve this conversation we've been talking about container networking okay let, let's set some groundwork here if i need a container i've stood up a container and i need that container to do what you just described talk to the outside world um, what happens there? And we're talking about this in the context of Kubernetes, the scheduler, the orchestration platform that's going to be standing up that container. So can we talk through the steps? And uh, I, mean, I, don't, I guess we don't need to go as detailed as a packet walk, but if we can get you know, kind of a higher level understanding for someone who's not had a chance to work with container networking before as to what's involved so that we all kind of get the picture here. I've gone through a little bit of training and there's a lot to it. Let's look at the requirements, what Kubernetes would expect out of containers and when they're networked. Uh, and one of the requirements is that each container or pod, as we say, as a unit of uh, well, what is deployed or orchestrated, uh, should get a network endpoint. By that, we mean an IP address at the very least. And you can have multiple of them, but one at the very least. Uh, they should be able to talk to containers without doing natting on the host. That was a pain we have dealt with as a earlier platform as service softwares that we, we had developed. Um, so we want to get away from that and we say each part will live as its own network entity. Entity For some operations reasons also, we want hosts, which are hosting the containers, to be able to talk to the pods through their IP addresses as well. And and it's not IP IP like IPv4 IPv6 oh. something, and we will throw in DNS as well. Just a name. The applications are normally just calling a DNS name or a, a service endpoint or talking to a message queue or something like that. It's not even the IP address that really people yes, care about. Correct. correct. And uh, then we bring in the uh, idea of services in Kubernetes, where service is when it's born, it's kind of sticks around a way to 
uh, reach the members of the service without the members being static. You know, you can have 10 pods belonging to a service. And if I need to reach that microservice, I just need to talk to that service. I don't care where those 10 of them are, whether they're 10 in fit all, if they're 12, or there's some of them have died, they're eight, and where they are, I don't need to care about it because I just need to consume that microservice. So uh, it's the birth of service in, as a concept in Kubernetes. And those need to be connected through via uh, something called a cube proxy, which is an implementation of saying, I will grab the service packets and I will load balance him to the members of the service. Ah, you just answered the question I was I was wanting to ask because I was like, yes, but there's still an IP endpoint out there that's got to communicate with something eventually, and it sounds like what bridges the gap between services, that sort of communication on the back end, and traditional IP service on the front end is this queue proxy. Yes, and the wonderful thing about it is you can plug it out. Say, I don't like the queue proxy that ships it. It just comes with, you know, like Kubernetes comes with its batteries included. I don't like those. I want to write my own because I have my own policies on the services themselves. Wonderful. So the network plugin can come in and say, replace the Kube proxy. I have my own Kube proxy. I will watch which services are born. I will watch which members are being born within that service and who is contacting them, who needs to contact to them. And all that policy can be driven down either from Kubernetes or from outside itself. And, and now we're talking, you know, all the composable pieces of container networking itself in Kubernetes, what we call pods, uh, and they're connected to the plugin system where Kubernetes is aware of where the things are. It is, it is kind of exposed the ideas of services, how things should be connected, but not implemented any of them. They are all pluggable. Yeah, so, you know, so no, I think... Rajat gave a very good overview of like what comes sort of with what is involved with Kubernetes networking, right? But then again, right, we are still addressing the question of how to network pods, right? But then going back to okay, what what happens when I need to get out, right? And the fallback, as you all know, is NAT, right? And and we all know the problems with that, and and you you know you can you can probably come up with something kludgy, but then how do you? You know, beyond connectivity, again, how do you enforce policies, right? So, so the way we are addressing it, right, is is again by effectively thinking of of pods as just first class citizens. So, pods become first class citizens in in the Noage infrastructure. They're just endpoints, and they're endpoints like any other VM or bare metal server, right? So, once we've kind of you know uh, brought everyone up to sort of the same level. Now, the policy framework that we have is really defined in terms of these endpoints. So it doesn't really matter whether those endpoints are sitting in, you know, in Kubernetes pods, or they happen to be VMs, or they happen to be bare metal servers. So now immediately you can see that you know, we, we don't need any natting. You, know, you can decide you know, exactly how you want your sort of these elements to be networked, right? You want whether you want to create you know, one single sort of L2, you know, domain out of it, or you want to create an L3 domain with different subnets, you have yeah. all that flexibility, uh, but then you still have the, the policy framework on top, which allows you to control, you know, who can talk to who, you know, all sort of that. And then being able to do that sort of as parts of being brought up, right? We talked about that earlier, right? We still have that, those capabilities. That's what the plugins do is, is as you're instantiating these things, you know, you, you bring in the policies on the fly, but you're mapping immediately and saying, you know what, these pods can go outside of that Kubernetes cluster, but here's the policy. Like, you know, if you've got, like, for example, some sort of shared service cluster, uh, you know, and you want to be able to protect that, you don't want to just suddenly say, yeah, you know what, I'm going to allow all my pods to be able to talk to that. And you know what, you suddenly start, you know, end up with a DOS, sort of even if it's internal and unintentional, uh, or maybe it is malicious, but you're preventing all of that by, by having that policy framework. Now, we've talked a lot about, uh, it, it, as far as this packet flow goes, we've talked about uh, policy, we've talked about proxy servers. We haven't mentioned an overlay network like VXLAN. Do we even need that in this sort of a setup? Because I'm kind of imagining this without that. It doesn't sound like we need it. There's different views on that, right? And I think, um, you know, we're still early in that game. But I think when you start talking about different environments, 
you know, definitely, I think, how do you, con- when I think about it, right, how am I going to connect these different environments? They're not, they're kind of under different sort of IP addressing domains. You know, it, it makes it much more easy to to do to do this using overlays, at least today, right? Because, you know, when I'm going between like, you know, you know, I'm going to some VMs and and I'm talking to some pods, which may be in, in, in themselves be inside VMs, right? So think about that and you think, hey, you know what? Uh, that's where the overlays come in and help a lot. So so that's, I think, one sort of definite use case where, where overlays make a lot, a lot of sense. I think the other place where uh, what we've seen is, you know, let's not forget you all, you still have true multi-tenanted environments. And what I mean by that is some, you know, one out there is is setting up Kubernetes, hosted Kubernetes or ho- whatever it is, right? But but hosting it on behalf of their customers who, who could be enterprises. And guess what? Overlays come in very handy, handy at that point because, you know, you can have give them each a very segre- segmented you know, or segregated environment and they can bring their own IP addressing and you don't have to worry about overlapping IPs and all of that. goes back to sort of the, the crux of why overlays were born in the first place. So, so there is a there is still a place for overlays in that world, right? Yeah, I mean, I think I would say uh, if the question is, do we need an overlay? Like, need means if it wasn't there, it wouldn't be functional. Yeah. No, that's not true. You mm-hmm. can have a very well functional Kubernetes cluster, OpenShift, which is a, a product of uh, you know built on Kubernetes by Red Hat. There is uh, something that uh, can work very well. You don't need it. It would function very nicely. And if you had needs which are probably not met by a, an underlay which is just directly hooked, you might need an overlay. For example, if you want to build a cluster unaware of what the overlay is across two data centers or public cloud, hybrid cloud, you know, uh, my, my center, or entirely on the public cloud, you want to maintain a cluster, then yes, what else do you have? You've got to do it. So I think overlays, what people underestimate about overlays is if you're configuring a container that's going to instantiate in a second or two, and that's how it works, containers can be instantiated in a second or two, um, the APIs that exist on networking equipment actually can't be configured at that sort of rate. If you cannot, if you imagine how long it would take to make an API call to a switch, create a VLAN or create a port or trunk a VLAN and how long it takes for the internal operating system to receive the API request, process it, load it into the silicon. You know, if a port's got a flap or, you know, go into enable mode, it might take, you know, 15, 30 seconds for it to cycle through. That's, That's right. the, the, To me, the whole idea of doing native networking for containers, uh, you know, it, it, that's not to say I would never do it, but it would not be my default position because the, trans- the, the temporary nature of containers, the foundation of containers is that they should come and go that could lead to flaps in the underlying network, whether it's a you know a layer two or a layer three network, or you know if you want to put a think of it this way, if you want to create a container with this layer three address um, in the network, and then all of a sudden you tear the container down and you instantiate another one on the other side of the network, and you need to use the same address, how do you do that? Are you going to build a layer two domain that spans the network, or are you going to do route injection slash thirty two host route injection or slash one twenty eight slash two fifty six uh, one twenty eight, and then push that into the network and let the routing protocol... Well, the routing protocol can't converge in, you know, sub-second intervals, well, not not BGP or, or even OSPF, not normally anyway, unless you're doing extraordinary, and not reliably so. These are very good points, you know, and, and, and they say that, yes, we need an overlay when we need an overlay. I, I mean, with, with all this good talk about, yes, we need an overlay and it functions very well and we can all program all these multi-tenants. And with containers, I, I, I also expect that the number of tenants would also probably increase. You know, It's not just saying, hey, I am one company or I am dev or I am test. Uh, it's also going to be my application, your application with different tenants. Why not? So uh, with containers being, you know, ha- uh, bridging the gap between, hey, what's deployment and it so becomes so fast and easy, uh, all these things are going to come into play and VLAN will probably run short and not probably, I'm definitely run short. So so yes, yes overlay, but uh, for the sake of good discussion, you know, and, and the fact also remains that uh, we might still need things which are not overlay, 
And I bring in a couple of points in, in, with our experience on, you know, people running OpenShift, the Kubernetes thing, um, in enterprises, is performance. You have encapsulated stuff. Someone got to decapsulate that. I mean, we got VXLAN as a good standard, and, and people can use Geneva or whatever, but um, you got hardware offload there. But the containers don't even bother. Like Kubernetes doesn't even care if the host is a bare metal or not. It could as well be mm. a VM. It could be a, a something deployed on OpenStack. There could be you know, end level of nesting there. Uh, the hardware offload may not be available. So who's going to bear the brunt of all that encapsulation, all the checksumming and everything? The mm -hmm. CPU. And that brings us to the point, if I have two machines and I do not have hardware offload uh, and I have a 10 gig a connection between them. Can I have two containers talk to each other and max the throughput? Sorry, it will fail there. So my microservices functional workload will work? Definitely. It, it's made so much easier with overlays, but at some point, some part of your cluster or some applications of your cluster will say, hey, I need something uh, which is more performant, as an example. Or also say, hey, can I connect to the actual underlay because I, I need to get exposed. I overlay, and I need to figure out the ingress problems then. Say, I have an overlay here. Something from outside needs to get in. How does it get in? Mm. There needs to be control, or there needs to be a switch somewhere, which says, yep. hey, I'll, I'll get you in. But some things of the Kubernetes cluster might just say, I want to get exposed directly out. Don't care. I'm just running it as a container. Doesn't mean I need to be, you know, kind of uh, be put behind this overlay and not be exposed or, or be exposed through these series of chains and switches and whatnot. You do the packet translation. I'm... Mm -hmm. Making a long story out of it, but I'm saying they're all equal. It depends on how and what are the needs of your cluster. And my dream or desire is that hopefully one day we can have multiple shades of these networks coexist on a single cluster. For example, you can say, hey, part of my application workload can exist in overlay, and some of it can exist on an underlay as well. Why not? <laughs> Gosh, <laughs> every network engineer just just hit themselves in the head, just whack their head, just really hard. Oh, God, jeez. How am I, I going to troubleshoot this stuff when it breaks? <laughs> Will this one live in the overlay or the underlay? Or, or is it both, actually? <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm saying that humorously, but in fact, there is some, uh, the, the, the strong implication there is for tooling, analysis, et cetera, that tells us exactly what's going on with all these applications when removing that doubt. Today, if you're a network engineer and you go to a developer and say, explain to me the network traffic flows generated by your application, typically they, they don't know or they don't know very well what that looks like. So if we put the burden on the scheduler to kind of automate this for us in, in accordance with a policy, sorting out exactly what's happened because we've been abstracted so far away from the actual what's going on, uh, troubleshooting performance issues and connectivity issues are going to be really, really challenging. Well, it is a complicated system, but I would say, you know, don't look at the scheduler for packet movement. It's the network provider's job to provide your monitoring and visibility into what has been going on. Now, where the policy came from is, yes, the Kubernetes or the OpenShift platform provided it because the that's how it was structured and was kind of handed off to the network plugin. But it's the network provider which has to provide that, irrespective of whether it was scheduled by Kubernetes, OpenShift, what, or Mesos, or something else outside the cluster. Yep. So, so let me. I think you know you brought up a very good topic, and and you know I think Rajat is right, and and I'm kind of biased in saying that Rajat is right because because you know what we are doing this. That's why I think it's. So, but but you know, not to be facetious, I think it's an important problem, and we realize that. And, and, you know, we just, um, you know, have started previewing our, our capabilities in that regard in how are you going to look at, at application flows. And I think the way I kind of look at networking um, in this world, especially in the world of containers, is that I like look at it even more as, as closer to applications than it ever has been. You know, all, you know, the network has always about been the, the application, but I think even more so now, uh, where you want these insights, and, and you're because because you know your your workloads are not static, your your traffic flows are not static. So how do you you know start looking at things and making sense of this, right? So that's where we've come in, and mm -hmm. and I'm started kind of providing these insights, visualizing you know the traffic flows to begin with, right? Like what's going on, who's talking to who, 
right? That sort of starts to, to give you a sense of, you know, what's going on in my application, right? But then going beyond that, right? When you, because, you know, what happens next is you say, well, you guys built, gave me this nice tool. You said it will be great. You know, it'll network my containers perfectly, but I think the network's my bottleneck. So how do you kind of go and, and you know, prove or disprove that, right? So I think that's kind of where we get into more, you know, deeper monitoring. Uh, and, and again, those are capabilities that I think it's a little early, but, you know, mm. I think the ideas are still around. And think about it this way, that you might need, you know, to start thinking it in terms of microservices, again, going back to that, and say, what is my aggregate view? You know, how are these microservices performing? How much data are they, you know, getting in and, and sending out? You know, what is the load varying? You know, how is that load varying over time? Because there's some correlation, of course, to number of pods, right? And and or, or containers, right? Depending on your platform, we're gonna we're gonna have to have that level of granularity to be able to troubleshoot application performance problems. The app is slow, slow response time. It takes too long to commit a transaction. Okay, it's microservice-based. We're going to have to know at a microservice level uh, and then at a container level exactly where that performance issue might be because without that, we're, we're too far away from what's really going on. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I, and I think let's extend that. Let's remember that we're talking about, you know, the future is sadly going to involve building private clouds and public clouds. And you're going to have containers in public clouds and you're going to have containers in private clouds. You're going to have resources that need to be accessed inside of your private cloud because that's where your data is. And you're going to have containers in the public cloud somewhere. And they're going to need to talk to each other. You know, we haven't even talked about security, but you've got to network those together over the internet. You don't, you know, most people won't build a private private MPLS to a public cloud because that's foolish. The cost is just prohibitive. You know, those are the sorts of things that we need not only to have the connectivity, but also to be able to see how those functions work. I mean, you're not going to own every switch in the path to make this work. It's going to go over the internet, then it's going to be in the public cloud. There's no guarantees of performance or reliability in the public cloud. So your networking is suddenly like, I've created an overlay on an infrastructure I know nothing about. I need to have something. Yeah, bring in an Internet of Things, and, and totally makes sense. No, absolutely. I think monitoring is going to be very, very key. Uh, I think that's the f- next frontier uh, for for where we are going with this. I think uh, there's some early, like I said, we started off with, with just like flow visualization, but I think that's just the start, right? Uh, but key, yes, absolutely. With public cloud, it becomes even more more important, right? Because because today you don't know you you're kind of getting what you're getting. But you're not really measuring that very well, right? You kind of see, you know, you have to kind of troubleshoot this and, you know, start at the app level, work your way back, and you can't really ever prove, you know, whether, you know, what went wrong there. Today we're not working at the sort of scale or the level of challenge that's coming around tomorrow. You can do a packet capture, you know, and get a pretty good visibility into where the performance is or you might know every hop of the network because you've been working on the network for a couple of years and you know every port, every switch and you can just do some CLIing around the network and see everything, right? That's not the future, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Definitely, I think we're going to have to rethink about, you know, operations, right? We're going to have to rethink about operations um, because you're right. We don't control um, and own the entire in- infrastructure anymore. So so we, we are going to have uh, sort of lose some level of granularity, but at the same time, we're going to have to sort of retool ourselves or rethink about operations and say, how do I make sense of this in the new world? Mm. Well, guys, I want to bring the conversation uh, back again to uh, to container networking specifically, uh, service insertion. Now, with VMs and that world, we're somewhat familiar with how to do that. Now that there's only one way, but uh, VXLAN tunnels between uh, services in the service chain is a, a straightforward way that it gets done these days. H- how do you deal with service insertion in the container world? So, so again, um, for for now, and that's where I think overlays are great. Uh, for you know, there's always pros and cons of every technology, uh, but you know, we've solved that problem and we solved it quite elegantly with overlays. And and I think that's another use case where uh, where people say, you know what, um, you know, they start thinking about do I need overlays, and then they come back and say, how do I do service insertion, right? So. Again, I think the answer today is still, still, you know, being able to do it. You know, with VXLAN, we've already solved that problem. 
You don't have to muck with the services themselves. So it, I think, plays out quite nicely. Um, so to me, the answer today is VXLAN. Is it going to be something else tomorrow, perhaps? Uh, but I think the services themselves are evolving. You know, if you think about it, uh, the service, you know, to some degree, we're we're absorbing. So, so if you think about the traffic patterns here, there's a lot of east-west traffic now, right? Because because your your sort of VMs have devolved into pods, and and you've got all these pods talking to you know in a microservice talking to other microservices. So there's a lot more sort of east-west traffic patterns that you'll see, and. That's where we're starting to see, you know, the services beginning distributed as well. So Rajat already talked about, for example, the mm. Kubernetes Kube proxy. So what that kind of means is you are going for a distributed load balancing architecture, right? I think that's, that's I think, a, a, a very fundamental, I think, building block uh, that people, when they think about networking, they don't think about, they, they, do, they do think about load balancers, but... I think in a containerized world, they don't quite yet see that, hey, it's probably the best paradigm for that. East-West traffic is going to be distributed load balancing, right? Similarly, I think a lot of the security functions are going to get distributed as well. Uh, that's what we do. We have, you know, a distributed stateful firewall, and and that's what, you know, uh, makes it easier to, to, A, to deploy these policies and also to enforce them, right? So I think the services themselves are getting distributed as well. And and so sort of now you're sort of doing these this chaining sort of thing. You know, you don't necessarily always need that, that service chaining that you kind of depended on in a VM world itself. But there are use cases where you say, I want to, you know, steer this traffic or this kind of you could do a policy based, you know, sort of steering, right? And say, I want to send this traffic through this thing, you know, through this device, some specialized function and bring it back. So I think that's kind of where I think overlays are still a good answer. Uh, Rashad, I got a question for you. Now, we, we've you're from Red Hat. You're not with Nuage. Um, so I, I want to understand a couple of things here. One. Um, you know, what's the relationship here between Nuage and Red Hat that brought you guys together for this podcast? And then two, you've mentioned OpenShift as a you know a platform that ties me to Kubernetes somehow, but I didn't actually get what OpenShift was all about. So can you ex- ex- uh, set that up for us and explain it? Sure. So Red Hat is uh, working on a platform uh, as a service product called OpenShift, and OpenShift is based on Kubernetes. It is Kubernetes, and it's, it's the enterprise thing that we try to sell. And it's OpenShift is has a couple of more features on top of Kubernetes and, and brings in you know all the uh, developer experience on this thing. For but you, example, but, but you said it's platform as a service. Uh, it is a platform as a service. Meaning I don't have to stand up a bunch of services and then you know, run OpenShift myself. I consume this from Red Hat? Both ways. Okay. You can do a dedicated one for you, and we will run it somewhere. You don't need to care. And uh, you have your own data center or your own favorite public cloud that you want to run, take the piece of software and run it by yourself. And, and we, we've got a real good product that's easy to use for operation side and the advantages that it brings to the developers that who, developers who use it. Uh, so uh, all the good points of Kubernetes, and then we're the most active contributor to Kubernetes as a community thing, as not just in terms of you know intent or, or design or architecture, but also by lines of code and the people that we put in. Uh, so we're the experts on and this in this technology and OpenShift is a product that we sell to enterprises. Uh, stand it up on your own and it's very easy to set up and uh, we're operationally very intense. And for the developers, has got uh, even more features. You know, uh, more like uh, the developer workflow. You can build your applications uh, and deploy them. Do a rolling deploy. Like you could just not even bother that it is a container. You could say, hey, here is my piece of code. It uses Ruby. Fair. So go to OpenShift mm-hmm. and put it together. We will build the container for you. We will build the uh, whatever Docker file format or whatever images it needs, and we will deploy it for you. And then you say, hey, I made a change. Git push. Worry not. We rebuilt the image. Everyone was watching. We, re- we, we did a roll-in deploy. We've managed the network by ourselves. There is, a no- there is an ingress load balancer stuff, and all the traffic is just going to go, and uh, your new code is going to get deployed. So all that... All that uh, you know, nice feeling from from the developer point of view comes in with OpenShift anyway. So mm. broadly, it's a platform with uh, Kubernetes. Why am I sitting here with Hermit for Nuage? With Nuage is uh, again, it's 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 probably the beauty of Kubernetes, where it says networking is such an essential part of this technology. 
even then uh, uh, we have kind of put in a plugin system there because it is also a complicated part where Kubernetes or OpenShift will define what are the requirements from you know from the pods point of view and everything and let that be implemented by the favorite networking technology of the customer so OpenShift shift ships itself with a with an overlay technology and stuff so it will work out of the box that said say hey you know what i i really like nuage's sdn well who doesn't but yeah but can it work together that's where the beauty of kubernetes plugins come in and we have worked really hard to get this plugin system going in where kubernetes will hand off all the networking stuff with the knowledge of the requirements and pass it off to the networking plugin and that's where nuage comes in and and i think back several months ago we we found this good synergy between nuage and red hat and as we were selling this product to openshift and pocs were going on and say hey we use nuage can we use the beauty of the product that they have with this and so why not we've not only you know it would just work anyway now we kind of sat down together and made sure that yes it doesn't work really work together we got common customers uh, i'm declaring our happy or hopefully happy also <laughs> so so that all leads me to, uh, to to one more question here which is this rajat you were talking earlier about the CPU penalty. I've got containers that need to talk to each other, and if there's NCAPs happening uh, on that box, on that host, and not in uh, a switch, you know, further downstream, then the the CPU is going to take a hit, and that's going to impact your overall throughput. Um, so I know that Nuage has got a, a feature here that, as far as I know, no one else does this, but you guys can deploy as Nuage a virtual switch directly on bare metal. Does this help with that throughput problem? So first of all, let's talk about what this is, you know, virtual switch directly on bare metal, because to me, I think virtual switch and I think hypervisor. So what is it when you're doing a virtual switch on bare metal? And then how does that help us or, or does it help us with this uh, CPU penalty problem? So uh, I think, you know, let's get back to sort of what was the use case? What what was what the problem we are, we're trying to solve? I think, yes, we are we're pretty unique in, in what we're doing. It, but there is also a tie-in to containers, um, you know, kind of in the back. But what it, what the use case was like back, you know, so, so till now, if you want to do, you know, integrate bare metal assets into an SDN sort of solution, then the answer has always been sort of go, you know, get it VTAP, right? And so specialized sort of, you know, hardware, but most of switches are nowadays do have that VTAP function. But then again, people don't like the idea of having to rewire and, and you know, bring in new hardware gateways per se. So they said, hey, what if, you know, uh, you know, I could just, you know, put the VTAP on the bare metal server itself. Right, and that's where our bare metal integrate, uh, you know, virtual switch comes in. Is essentially you're now moving the VTAP into the server itself, right? So now you can, you don't have to rewire. The beauty of the solution is you do not have to rewire anything, any right. You do not have to go by hard, you know, hardware gateways if that's not your preference, and um, and that's it. You know, you install the software, and we can extend all the policies. Uh, just like we were doing, you know, with VMs or with containers, and you can now do that with bare metal applications. Now, how do we do that? L- maybe a little bit of that, because I, I kind of give a hint that there's a tie into containers. So because of all the work we, do- we did with containers and, you know, namespaces and all of that, um, it this, this, you know, this bare metal virtual switch really depends on or uses those same constructs where we are using Linux namespaces to, to map things between the underlay yeah. and the overlay. Mm-hmm. But in this case, there just happens to be one application. The other thing I do want to mention is that the way we've done this, you do not have to change your application anyway. It just thinks it's, it's, it has an ETH zero, just like before. There is no change in that. I think uh, we have done some t- early testing. The, the performance results are pretty pretty promising. Uh, but then again, you know what? You're, you're getting flexibility. Remember this, right? You're getting that flexibility that, you know, uh, and if it comes with some, you know, CPU penalty, you know, you didn't have to go buy out, you know, buy and rewire, your, you know, buy new VTAPs and rewire your data center. It just works, uh, kind of lays over your existing infrastructure. So I think that's what people are looking for today is they are willing to, you know, you, if you can actually get network automation, which I think is a big part of SDN, right? 
if you can get get me automation uh, that's a big win right and and it may come at the expense of something else but then there are you know not all again goes back to you know we're not trying to solve every use case but i think we solve a lot of use cases uh, you know by doing a virtual switch on the bare metal server yeah, so we get a lot of functionality there. I'm gonna I'm, now. I'm gonna speculate, but it it probably doesn't impact the CPU penalty issue one way or the other because it's still uh, asking that local CPU to do the end cap decap uh, stuff. But um, you know, uh, depending on your throughput requirements, that's fine. It's you know it's it's only uh, well, when you. I, de- I, I'll probably you know budge in here, but uh, I would say the end cap decap. Uh, has has two parts to it. I mean, just just the in-cap decap is not the point. There's some checksumming stuff which goes on, and that can be hardware offloaded. And if I was deep inside somewhere nested VM, I wouldn't be able to do that. And I have to involve my uh, VM CPU there. But if you're on uh, bare metal itself, and your bare metal does have uh, checksumming offload capabilities, which most of the network cards today offer 2010 at least do, we having a virtual switch inside the bare metal does not mean that we cannot use the checksum offload that comes with the NIC on hardware. It's just that we're not deep inside, so we can actually use it. And and we at Red Hat Performance Labs, we have done these uh, measurements, and uh, you would may not believe the exact numbers, but the ballpark numbers are that we had 60% uh, uh, you know, suffering uh, without that, and we were able to close it to 95% line rate after just saying we got uh, checksumming offload. Mm. Uh, okay, yeah. right, okay. So, so in fact, you know, this flavor of doing things is good because of the access that you have to the hardware. Okay, exactly. Okay, so that's that's that, that's a good thing. Then I wasn't sure you were yeah. going there with that for a minute, and then it's like, <laughs> oh, we went from 60% penalty to 95% uh, uh, positive, you know, efficiency. That's good. It's good. I had to pave pave the whole, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Thank you, Rajat, for for answering the performance question as well. Um, so there we well, have performance is important, right? But a lot of people think that there is a performance penalty for doing overlays and for doing container networking because everything has to be switched in the server. There has to be a whole bunch of virtual switching. So performance benefits are key to low latency. Absolutely, and I, I think you know. As these technologies mature, like like Rajat was saying, right now most of the NICs have this, these offload capabilities. I think in the in the software sort of you know virtual switch, I think there's going to be a lot of work going on, and I think we are going to kind of you know close in on a lot of these gaps, whether they're real or perceived. But, but to begin with, you know what is the real you know penalty? Um, people kind of swing you know one way or the other, so that's also. Um, I would say controversial, right? But you know, and whether there is a large penalty and whether you know it, but it it is an important, I think, consideration. And I think over time, um, as these technologies mature, I think we are going to close in on those gaps. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's just about it for the show today. Thanks very much to New Arch Networks for sponsoring the show and talking to us about how their virtualized services platform, which is their SDN networking strategy and their containers work together. So hopefully we've given you some intro into that. Before we go, before we say goodbye, so Hamid, please tell people where they can find you on the internet. Sure. So uh, to find, I would say to you know they can look me up personally if they want to look me up uh, and and get in touch about you know uh, SDN and containers. They can look me up on LinkedIn. Um, they're on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter as well, Sani underscore Hermit. Um, and uh, if they want to just go to our website and and find out you know what what all solutions we have, then that address is you know www.nuagenetworks.net. Um, and that's it. That's it. Uh, there was a very good white paper I used as part of preparing for this called the uh, VSP Docker Containers Solution Brief, which is a fairly um, detailed introduction to how to think about networking in a containers world. And uh, sort of at the risk of pl- pl- over-plugging our vendors, that is actually a nice soft two or three page introduction to some of the networking issues there. I'll just give you, uh, you know, go and have a look at that. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Rajat, why don't you tell people where they can find you on the internet? 
just Google it up, man. Well, so <laughs> do, do, put my name there and say Red Hat, and then I, hopefully yeah. I show up. Uh, and and right. I, I I would just want to say, you know, uh, Kubernetes is a great technology, and just just try it out. And um, uh, Red Hat is, a, is is kind of an enterprise support thing for for this new amazing thing that I think is, has has great future. And mm-hmm. not only because it, it seems to get any momentum, but also because it is a you know good product to have your application workloads be deployed on. Right. And Red Hat's throwing its weight behind it with its own version of that product. And, you know, people like yourself are teaming with Nuage Networks to make the whole thing work end-to-end. Yes. Absolutely. Fantastic. Well, uh, as always, you can find more about uh, the show and many more other of our fine free technical podcasts along with our blog at packetpushes.net. You can follow us on Twitter as at packetpushes. And of course, we're hanging around on LinkedIn, Facebook. And if it uh, would be really, really useful if you could rate us on iTunes, it's the best way for us to share the show with even more people. And last but never least, remember that too much technology would never be enough.